Investing in the Kingdom of God by Nicolaus, Metropolitan of Mesogai and Lavrotiki, translated into English by Ioana Dalinis and Caroline Macropoulos, published by Alexander Press, Montreal, 2017, Orthodoxy and Dialogue with the Modern World, Volume 5. About Metropolitan Nicolaus. Metropolitan Nicolaus Hadzi Nikolai holds a bachelor's in science and physics from the Aristotle University in Thessaloniki, Greece, and a master degree in astrophysics from Harvard University, and a master's in science in mechanical engineering from MIT. His PhD studies and part of his research in biomedical engineering and applied mathematics took place at HST, that is the Harvard-MIT collaborative. He has worked as a researcher and scientific partner in various hospitals in the Boston area in the USA and as scientific advisor at reputable companies in space medical technology. He studied theology at Holy Cross, Greek Orthodox School of Theology, and received a Master in Theological Studies and a Master of Theology. In 2003, he received a PhD in Theology from the University of Thessaloniki, Greece, on Orthodox Christian Ethics and Bioethics, and was awarded by the University of Athens the honorary title of Doctor of Social Theology. Upon his return from the USA in 1989, he was tonsured a monk in and Then he was ordained a deacon and a priest. He served for a number of years at an Athenite dependency in Athens, where he consulted and comforted on a daily basis people in pain and distress. In 2004, he was elected a metropolitan of Mesogai and Lavrotiki in Greece, and among his other activities, he founded the first hospice in Greece under the auspices of the church. He is the author of a number of theological and scientific articles and books, and during the last 15 years, he has participated in Greek and international conferences regarding a broad spectrum of social and bioethical issues and the relationship between orthodox theology and modern science. Alexander Press, Montreal. Alexander Press publishes and distributes in English, French, and Greek its own titles and those from many exceptional Greek publishing houses. Special emphasis is given to Orthodox theology, iconography, spirituality, monathos, Greek history, modern Greek literature, and Greek popular tradition, other materials that reflect the, quote, inner Greece, the soul of Greece, the Romosaini, forgive the pronunciation, the reader, of today and yesterday. Alexander Press, founded by Dr. John Haji Nikolai, director of the Montreal Center for Greek Studies in 1987, is today a dynamic and flourishing publisher serving a rapidly growing community in North America, seeking resources for the living Greek and Orthodox heritages. Investing in the Kingdom of God. Nicolaus, Metropolitan of Mesogai in Lavrotiki. If only we could invest a moment in the kingdom of God and realize that the returns are extremely high. So high that in the kingdom there is no time, no fear, no inhibition, inferiority, insecurity, guilt, none of those things which trouble us in this life. This is the blessing of God's freedom. It is this which we must bring to life within us here on earth until each one of us will be able to change from being temporal to being eternal 
from being only human to being spiritual. By inspiring us to act, words can be passed that lead us toward the other discourse, the ethos of the eighth day, the beauty that will save the world. Such are Metropolitan Nicolaus's words. His previous book in English, Mount Athos, the highest place on earth, was greeted as a spiritual gem of eternal value. In the present book, Investing in the Kingdom of God, Metropolitan Nicolaus's insights have substance and wisdom. He deals in an accessible manner with questions that weigh down our human souls. His pastoral counsel is considerate and discerning, focused on the moment, all the while with an eye on the path up the mountain. They are words for our time. Investing in the Kingdom of God, Nicolaus, Metropolitan of Mesogaia Lavrotiki, translated by Ioana Dalianis and Caroline Macropoulos. Published by Alexander Press, Montreal, 2017. Orthodoxy and Dialogue with the Modern World, Volume 5. About Metropolitan Nicolaus. And the reader will ask your patience and forbearance for mispronunciation of Greek names and Greek terms. Metropolitan Nicolaus, Hadzinikoloi, holds a BS in physics from the Aristotelian University of Thessaloniki, Greece and a master's in astrophysics from Harvard University, an MS in mechanical engineering from MIT. His PhD studies and part of his research in biomedical engineering and applied mathematics took place at HST, that is the Harvard-MIT collaborative. He has worked as a researcher and scientific partner in various hospitals in the Boston area in the United States of America, and as a scientific advisor at reputable companies in space medical technology. He studied theology at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology and received a Master in Theological Studies and a Master of, of Theology in 2003. He received a PhD in Theology from the University of Thessaloniki, Greece, on Orthodox Christian Ethics and Bioethics and was awarded by the University of Athens the honorary title of Doctor of Social Theology. Upon his return from the USA, in 1989, he was tantured a monk in Mount Athos and then he was ordained a deacon and priest. He served for a number of years at an Athenite dependency in Athens, where he consulted and comforted on a daily basis people in pain and distress. In 2004, he was elected a Metropolitan of, Metro of Mesogai and Lavrotiki in Greece, and among his other activities, he founded the first hospice in Greece under the auspices of the church. He is the author of a number of theological and scientific articles and books and during the last 15 years, he has participated in Greek and international conferences regarding a broad spectrum of social and bioethical issues and the relationship between orthodox theology and modern science. Alexander Press, Montreal. Alexander Press publishes and distributes in English, French, and Greek its own titles and those from many exceptional Greek publishing houses. Special emphasis is given to orthodox theology iconography, spirituality, Mount Athos, Greek history, modern Greek literature and Greek popular tradition, and other materials that reflect the, quote, inner Greece, the soul of Greece, of today and yesterday. Alexander Press, founded by Dr. John Hajinikolai, director of the Montreal Center for Greek Studies in 1987, is today a dynamic and flourishing publisher 
serving a rapidly growing community in North America, seeking resources for the living Greek and Orthodox heritages. Publisher's Note It gives me special joy to present the fifth volume in Alexander Press's series, Orthodoxy and Dialogue with the Modern World, with the publication of Investing in the Kingdom of God, by my cousin, Nicolaus, Metropolitan of Mesogai and Larotiki. The objective of this series is to present works of authors from diverse backgrounds that will contribute to Orthodoxy's ongoing dialogue with the world today, deepening our understanding or, by witness, sharing the joys and hardships of following the spiritual path today. Investing in the Kingdom of God does just that. Metropolitan Nicolaus's words have moved many in Greek and will move many more again in English. Investing in the Kingdom of God is Metropolitan Nicolaus's second publication in English. His first book, Monathos, The Highest Place on Earth, Athens, edition 2007, was greeted as a spiritual gem of eternal value that, while putting a decidedly human face on the many ascetic warriors of, on the holy mountain, laid bare the true beauty of their spiritual lives, cautioning against seeking spiritual shortcuts up the mountain. Words, while not sufficient conditions in themselves, can, by inspiring us to act, be corridors, paths, channels that lead us toward the other logic, the other discourse, the ethos of the eighth day, the beauty that will save the world. Metropolitan Nicolaus's words have substance and wisdom presented in a spare style that foregoes an impenetrable rhetoric. In an accessible manner, he deals with questions that weigh down our human souls. His pastoral counsel, focused on the moment, is considerate and discerning, all the while with an eye on the path up the mountain. They are words for our time. Investing in the Kingdom of God was first published in Greek, 2005. Three of the four short texts were given by Metropolitan Nicolaus as homilies on particular occasions, while a fourth text was originally a radio interview that has been edited for publication in Greek by Vasilias Argiadis. The book has been translated by Ioana Dalinis and Caroline Makropoulos, signed Dr. John Haji Nikolai, Pentecost, 2009. Why me, God? Talk given at the Third Seminary on the Psychosocial Support of Children with Cancer and Their Families, Department of Oncology, AK Children's Hospital, Athens, Greece, November 2002. Why me, God? At first, I would like to express my sincere and heartfelt gratitude to Dr. K, who so kindly took the initiative to invite me to this meeting, which aims to provide psychosocial support to children suffering from cancer and to their families. At the same time, I should also like to express my awkwardness in agreeing to speak about such a delicate and demanding subject, which is so difficult to express in words before an audience. It is too profound to bring it to the surface of our understanding. It is too painful to fit in the horizon of our endurance. It is too personal to be presented within the context of a public speech. Why me, God? Maybe this question is more painful than its cause. 
because we all know that there is no easy answer. Yet, it is so insistent and true. It sounds in my ears and resounds deep in my heart. It is posed by every parent whose child is ill or by every person who has been struck by an incurable disease. How is it possible to transform it into a talk, a piece of advice, an opinion, or an answer? This question is constantly being expressed and answered only with tears, not with words, with feelings, not with thoughts, with silence, not with viewpoints, with compassion, not with arguments. Perhaps I should be part of the audience, and you all, parents, children, nurses, physicians, the speakers. Often our eyes speak more clearly than our tongue, our sighs more powerfully than our thoughts, and our painful bewilderment reflects the truth more than the, any answer. For this reason, I feel embarrassed to address my talk to you. Nevertheless, I accepted the honor of this public embarrassment as an opportunity for communion with you. I did not come here to give you a word of consolation as if you were strangers. For you are all my fellow men and women, the purest and most essential part of myself, since being in communion with you abolishes my ego. Therefore I came here to offer my word to your soul's need to express its silent pain and utter its insistent question. After giving me the topic of my talk, Dr. K suggested that we visit the children's wards. I tried to avoid her pr proposition. I took a quick glance at the walls of her very original kind of office that displayed the struggling faces of children in pain yet full of hope. Some of them are still among us and multiply our joy. Others have departed this life and generate within us the need to meet them in God's embrace. The books in this office were fewer than the photographs, the wealth of scientific knowledge poorer than the abundance of the truth of life, and the questions and the unknown were fading before the radiance of this unique form of love that one could feel in this place. We left her office with unconfessed relief. I was leaving behind truth to enter into the falseness of this life. However, I stumbled across the greatest truth in a lounge at a small table, three children were playing board games. Their faces were pale, they had no hair, and they had intravenous chemotherapy tubes in their arms. Next to them, there was an equal number of young mothers and a grandfather. The eyes of the adults at once fixed on me. The children continued to play in a carefree manner. I felt uneasy and did not dare to give the fake smile of the good priest who had come to do his good deed. Never had the parents' glances and the children's carefree attitude pierced my heart so deeply. This picture was instantly transformed into a question that still resounds within me. These eyes thirsted for a reply to the most concise but profound question ever formed within the heart of every normal human being. Why me, God? Ultimately, the eyes in pain can quench their thirst only with their tears, not with my words, I thought. I bade them farewell, and along with the memory of their expressions, I took with me the question, why? Why? Why pain? Why injustice? 
Why children? Why so prematurely? Why in this way? Why should the indescribable joy of their innocent presence be succeeded by unbearable pain? Why? And if it is for our own good, which is unknown to us, why does it have such a bitter taste? Why to me? What wrong did I do? Should I search inside myself to find the cause? And if I am to blame, why can't I do something to reverse the situation? Why should my innocent child suffer because of me? This is more difficult to bear. I risk losing my feeble faith. Why me, God? Am I not your child? Aren't you the God of love? What is the relationship between your love and my trial? How can my ordeal draw me close to you? How can your kindness be compatible with the inexplicable logic of pain, sorrow, and the risk that I may lose my faith? A young couple. They've just met. Their dream is to live their love as intensely as possible, as deeply as possible. This is life. Well, this experience not only generates warmth and tenderness, but it also possesses a power. It has a generative power. It grants life. For it cannot exist by itself and be limited within itself. In the rapture of their love, they get married. In the beginning, they live happily. They look into each other's eyes to confirm their conviction that everything will go well. This defines their dream and nurtures their hopes. The young woman is pregnant. Their smile is wider than their embrace. It is the first time that another person will be part of their love, one who cannot be seen but who increases and reinforces this love. The changes in the woman's body attest to a new life which is both born out of love and generates love. The small invisible embryo gives life to the parents even though they can only sense its presence. Truly, they discover that they do not only love each other more, but also in a new way. The quality of their relationship has improved. The young woman already feels like a mother. All she can think of is hold her child tightly in her arms. The day to give birth arrives. Natural pain is succeeded by the joy of a new life, the beauty of a new presence at home, the revelation of a unique person. Together they experience joy, sleepless nights, worries, cares, hugs, kisses, toys, dreams. Child grows, begins to move about, smile, speak, walk, get up to mischief, and go to school. The bond grows stronger. Our fear increases as we hear that another child is affected by a serious illness. Our smile is cut short, but only for a short while. Profound fear dominates our soul and defines our disposition. No, it is out of the question. That will not happen to us. There must be an underlying reason that the illness has struck the other family. The chances that our child will also fall ill are either small or non-existent. With the few grains of faith that we have, we make the sign of the cross secretly. If God exists, he will see us. He will protect us, especially now that we have managed to call on him in time, at least psychologically. Beside, God is love. If he does not take pity on us, at least he will take pity on our poor little child who is so innocent. But as our child is playing, he becomes dizzy, or he runs a high temperature which lasts for days and does not come down, or he has a lingering and inexplicable pain 
We are afraid. But we are certain that tests will show up, a virus, or at worst, a childhood illness, which in the past was serious, but nowadays can be successfully treated. Several days have passed. The calmness of our joy is interrupted by the successive thunderbolts of doctors' opinions. It is cancer. Cancer equals crab. The diagnosis reminds us of a tasty sea creature, but now one of its pincers claps our mind and another pierces our heart. What we would normally devour greedily now consumes our very being. We do not even want to think about it. We are unable to believe it. A few days ago, we held each other tightly because God has given us one of his little angels. Today, our embrace is like a basin collecting our tears, lest God take our angel away from us prematurely. The stream of medical tests is followed by the agony of unanswerable whys. Why so much pain, God? What was this innocent little creature to blame for? Why my child, who in my eyes stands out as the best little boy or girl, and not some unknown child far away? Why should he be in pain, suffer, be tormented silently without complaining and endure unsuspectingly? Why should he leave behind his toys, siblings, parents, prospects, our dreams in this world before his time? Why should all this happen? And why can no rational explanation be of support? No interpretation console us. No word sustain us. We evade all this and seek refuge in some miracle. Who knows? Christ resurrected the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow at Nain. He healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman and the centurion's servant. God loves children especially and continually urges us to be instructed in their innocence. His love is inexhaustible. So many miracles take place elsewhere and have taken place in the past. So why can one not occur in our own time for our child? What kind of a God is he? Can he not work a single miracle? However, our efforts to console ourselves only intensify our ordeal. Miracles are miracles because they do not occur so very often. Wouldn't it be unjust if we were the only ones to experience God's miracle? Why should some experience his beneficent presence and others be deprived of it? Why should some glorify him while the rest, the majority, be humbled and entreat him? And if he is able to work miracles, why does he not cure everyone, or rather, why does he not abolish illness so that we can live our brief lives in peace and happiness? I wonder, does God exist in order for us to suffer trials, or does he not exist and yet we still continue to suffer? Some people tell us that God loves us and this is why he allowed the trial. So why then does he love us only us, and not those who respond to our pain with advice, offering us these comforting words. Why do their children play without cares and laugh, while ours is pale and his life is kept going through drugs? Why do their children amuse themselves with jokes and childish mischief, while ours is taken in by our little lies and foolish hopes that supposedly he will recover and go back to school? Why should they have dreams for their children while we tremble at the thought of our child's future? If we supposed that God came to decide that children should not become ill, then 
how then would he bear adults being tormented and how would this remain consistent with his love and his divinity? Why should life be so tragic? Why should one fear to love, hesitate to make commitments or to become attached to others? The stronger the love, the greater the pain of separation. The deeper the emotions, the greater the wound inflicted by pain. Why, indeed? Sometimes it seems to us that these whys might be the cause of our suffering. Some people advise us not to ask whys. Whys are not allowed to be asked of God. Perhaps this sin of ours is to blame for our child's ordeal. And yet these whys, when stated humbly and peacefully, not only reveal the image of our most true self, but also express the truest existential question there is. The Blessing of Pain Blessed wise, Christ himself sanctified them on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, why did you do this to me? What have I done? Am I not your son? The same question is mine. And that too remained unanswered. It remained unanswered to all appearances at that moment. However, subsequent events revealed the reply. Many such whys also came out of the mouth of the long-suffering Job, or flowed from the pen of the wounded David, two persons whose lives were marked by the tragic deaths of their children, and who, were, who are presented throughout history as unique examples of faith, fortitude, and endurance. We address this question to God, to ourselves. We repeat it to those who we feel love us dearly. We say it mainly to express our inner feelings, but we also say it in anticipation of a soothing reply. But who can give an answer? Even if it is known, who can utter it? St. Basil the Great tells a grieving father that suffering makes a person so sensitive that he becomes like an eye which cannot bear even the touch of a feather. Even the most tender movement increases the pain of the suffering person. Even the most subtle comparison to a similar trial is unbearable for them. A word expressed as a rational argument cannot be tolerated. Only tears, sharing the question, silence and inner prayer are able to relieve the suffering, illuminate the darkness, or give rise to a glimmer of hope. Suffering leads to truth, compassion, and communion. Suffering does not awaken only us. It also generates love in the people around us. They try to put themselves in our position. Although they are not in pain themselves, they strive to share our emotions, which are so undesirable for them. Pain gives rise to patience in us, but at the same time to loving bonds with our brothers. It also gives rise to truth. The compassion of others plants the truth in our own heart. There, the answer also nestles discreetly. Thus, consolation is born in our heart, and the sweetness and relief it offers are far more intense experiences than the weight of suffering. The answer is born within us. We are told by scientists that two parents can produce infinitely different offspring. Just as humans differ vastly in their facial appearance, so does, and even more so in this case, the expression of the inner world of children vary. The same is also true of answers to these important questions. 
If someone else gives us his supposedly correct answer, he will destroy the variety and the individuality of our own answers, sacred answers which God holds in store for each one of us. The supposed wisdom of a wise man will destroy the truth and freedom of God within us. To expect an answer from others is a great mistake. What wise man, what enlightened person, what philosopher, what priest, secure in the rectitude of his arguments, knows the answer to our whys, which are so personal? The answer can be discerned only within ourselves, not in supposedly similar cases, nor in sonorous books, nor in recipes for consolation and wisdom. The answer does not exist somewhere. No one knows it. The answer arises within us. Our own answer is God's gift to us. Suffering takes us beyond human measures. Ultimately, the answers to these whys are not of the kind that our weak and inadequate self expects. Within the limits of our human logic, they usually remain unanswered. This is why Christ uttered only a few words about his death. He himself chose it, and his suffering was unparalleled. When he rose from the dead, almost no words came out of his mouth, just his living breath. He said nothing of life and death. He merely prophesied Peter's martyrdom. Suffering cannot be responded to with arguments, nor can injustice and death be met with reasoning. These problems are resolved only by receiving the divine breath of God. They are resolved through the Holy Spirit. They are overcome through a humble acceptance of God's will, which is so true, but at the same time, usually so incomprehensible. While the trial is going on, it is accompanied by the pounding of unanswered questions. We, fixed to the maybes, the whys and ifs, maintain our hopes and endure our existence in this world, anticipating a definite or secure answer. This is not normally found in the solution we propose, but in divine consolation, which is unexpected and transcends reason. Every attempt to replace it with human substitutes is an injustice to ourselves. Every self-restriction within the stifling noose of our rationalistic answers traps us up more deeply in our own tragedy. In our dialogue with suffering, injustice, and death, we are obliged to exceed human measures. This is not only a way of overcoming our trial, but it is also a blessing. A unique opportunity. Ultimately, we can pose the question, but we must await the response. Either God does not exist, or he allows a trial in order to give us a unique opportunity. If the crucifixion had not occurred, there would have been no resurrection. Christ would have been a good teacher, but not God. God gives the opportunity. It remains for us to recognize it and make use of it. The joy and the depth of potential of this opportunity are far greater than the intensity and the pain of the trial. Death, suffering, and injustice are mysteries to which there can be no answers. In such cases, truth is not expressed as an opinion or an argument, but offered as humility and shared suffering. The journey to the frontiers of life and death, of belief and unbelief, of miracles and injustice presents twists and hidden turns where the truth is ensured. 
If one resists the temptation to give in, then truth is encountered in ways one had never even conceived of. Embracing our suffering will give rise to newly discovered sensitivities and will unfold realities which cannot otherwise be seen. The challenge is not the events and revelations themselves. These exist. The challenge is for us to open our eyes in order to be able to see them truly. Unfortunately, it is an undeniable truth that we acknowledge and gain the greatest things only when we lose what we love above anything else. Certainly, pain and injustice cannot abolish God's love. God exists. He is love and life, perfect love and the fullness of life. And the greatest miracle of his existence is that he coexists with pain, injustice, and death. Perhaps the greatest challenge for each of us is to coexist with our personal suffering, to hold tight these deeper whys in a hopeful embrace and to humbly abandon ourselves into the hands of God precisely through the injustices we believe he does to us. A few days ago, I was approached by a young girl. The oil lamp of her life seemed to be flickering out. Within her unbearable suffering, I discerned hope. In her tearful eyes, I came face to face with joy, strength, and wisdom. I want to live, she told me, but I did not come here for you to confirm this for me. I came so that you could help me depart this world prepared. I am a priest of life and not of death, I replied. That's why I want you to live. But let me ask you something. In your trial, do you ever ask, why me, God? I don't understand you, Father, she replied. I ask, why not me, God? I do not wait for my death, but I hope for my illumination. Encountering God Through Transcendental Risks Lecture given at one of the regular events of the Panhellenic Organization, the Friends of Manathos, at the Athens Archaeological Society on 19th of November, 2001. I am extremely glad that I have braved today's meeting. My decision to agree to your kind offer was not rational. I do not know where the logic lies in your idea to invite me to your fine and genial annual meeting. I have to admit right from the start that I am not a genuine Athenite. You yourselves will understand this. I am more a friend of Manathos than an Athenite. A friend of Manathos is not someone who is a member of a society, nor is he or she someone who knows how to list the monasteries in order, or who is personally acquainted with the abbots, its history, and so on. A friend of Manathos is anyone who senses its size and is inspired by its ethos and mindset. Similarly, an Athenite is not someone who has received an Athenite tonsure or whose name is inscribed in the register of an Athenite monastery. An Athenite is someone who has managed to be written off by the world. I am not. My proof? Your invitation to this place tonight. We are all trying, you and I, to become at least friends of Mount Athos. We're trying to become friends of God. If we search in the depth of our quest and our intentions, we will discern the desire for an encounter with him, an encounter we would wish for, but we have difficulty believing in. 
It seems to be beyond our measure, and we therefore do not usually attempt it. The fathers of our church tell us that the encounter with God occurs through a meeting with our brethren, as well as with our inner self. I therefore feel that the present meeting is an opportunity for brotherly communion and critical self-knowledge. It is not a talk given by me to you, the audience. It is a meeting of equal persons. It is an answer, one of the infinite answers to the sole question of God and man, to the question before which secular reason crumbles and rationalistic ways disintegrate. Every encounter has its risks. We all took a risk, both you who invited me here and I who accepted your invitation. The possibility of disappointment is not small. For the audacity of my running a risk, I ask your forgiveness. For the boldness, love, and kindness of your risk, I thank you with all my heart. So, let us proceed. Either God exists and he deserves everything, or he does not exist and the story can end. Indeed, he does exist. He exists so that he may be con communed of and shared. Thus, our meeting today aspires to refer to this encounter with God, an encounter which sometimes arises out of an inexplicable inner revelation or an unusual miraculous experience. At other times, it occurs as the result of a sincere quest or as the natural consequence of a spiritually healthy upbringing. But it can also come as the fruit of a transcendental risk. Of course, God also appears through simple events of everyday life, but he is principally met through the extremes of human nature and will. On the borderline between the natural and the transcendental, one can detect the imprint of the divine presence. When we come face to face with the unknown, with danger, suffering, injustice, unanswered dilemmas, and inner crises, then the possibility of encountering God increases. Mount Athos, which has brought us here today, is a place for encountering God, particularly through transcendental risks. The mountain of history, the mountain of today, the mountain of truth, the mountain which is visible and non-visible bears no relation to the logic of this world. This is why it cannot be studied but only experienced. Thus, for example, the Avanton, footnote, the prohibition of the entry of women to the holy mountain Athos, Panagia's garden, cannot be explained using worldly arguments. Nor can monasticism as a way of life be understood through modern logic. I personally feel that I am an inexplicable mystery to the minds of most of my friends and acquaintances who love me deeply but have difficulty in understanding me. When the Lord's disciples were with him in Galilee, they understood him to be a teacher. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they felt him to be a king. At Golgotha, they lost him, and after his resurrection, they recognized him, but in another form. It is to this loss of God and the recognition of his other form that I thought we should devote tonight's talk, to the other logic, which grows fainter as the coarseness of human nature and way of thinking increase dangerously. The current trend is to profess an approach to God either through the impudence of modern ways, of an earthly, entirely earthly orientation, or through the cowardice and insecurity of conservative and pedantic choices reflecting a glorified but barren and unbending tradition. However, the fear of God, which is so essential if one is to approach him, 
in essence conceals boldness, decisiveness, freedom, and wisdom. It conceals a risk. On the one hand, there is God, and on the other hand, there is man longing for him. The need for their encounter is the purpose of the whole of creation, a great mystery with three components. One, the distant, hidden nature of God. In the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel according to John, God is presented as being made manifest in some way, as discreetly revealing his mystery, as if he were hidden and is revealed to the church, appearing to the world. Hence the expressions, he showed himself, or Jesus appeared, are relatively common. However, if we pay attention and use our common sense, the logic which most of us normally use to think and to understand truth and facts, we shall see that the reality is, or at least seems to be, slightly different. God appears hidden, difficult, and distant to this world. He gives more of a suspicion as to his identity than a feeling, knowledge, or certainty. However, we all expect something more. We see God differently from the way he appears to us. His ways and our habits are different. He manifests himself to us, yet we feel that he is unknown. He meets us, yet we ask ourselves where he is. From the very beginning of time, in paradise, God allowed Adam and Eve to taste of all the trees except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In essence, the tree of the knowledge of God. He told them that if they ate of that tree and came to know him, they would surely die. They would die immediately. How strange! Although he offers himself to be known, he does not give the tree and the fruit of knowledge to Adam and Eve. In a wonderful description in the book of Exodus, we see Moses ascending Mount Sinai and receiving the commandment from God. No one must ascend high on the mountain so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Lest as they approach, they understand something of the fire of his divinity, and thousands fall dead. Again, at Sinai, there at the bush, at the other theophany, which means revelation of God, when Moses asked God to manifest himself to him, saying, Show me your glory, God answered that Moses could see only his footprints and back. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. God is indeed difficult. You seek him, and he hides himself. Heaven and earth are full of his glory, yet he cannot be discerned. You approach him, and he distances himself. But he is also easy. He is easy and difficult. Perhaps we seek and approach him in human ways. We want to humanize him, to subject him to human nature without realizing it. Again, when you encounter him, although you are the one who is seeking him, you realize that it is he who is pursuing you. You do not discover him. He reveals himself to you. These are not the only examples. God is difficult even to the Apostle Paul, who was caught up to the third heaven and saw visions and revelations and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Why is man, and indeed the Apostle Paul, not able to describe God's mysteries? Why should he reach only the third heaven and not go beyond? But why do we go so far? 
Let us touch on the resurrection itself. Let us consider the apostles for a moment. Did they not have cause for complaint? They lived with him and did not understand him. Mary Magdalene saw him, approached him with a sacred desire to touch him, and he said, Touch me not. Cleopas and Luke walk to Emmaus. They suspect something. Their souls warmed. And just as he reveals himself to them and their mind is opened, he vanished out of their sight. At the very moment they wanted to fulfill their yearning to touch him, somehow to have a taste of him, they lose him. This is not the only instance. In Bethlehem, God was manifest in the flesh, and he was born secretly in the cave. The same happened with the apostles. For 33 years, God lived among them in this world unnoticed, appearing more as a human being. Their minds were sealed, and they probably did not understand very many things during the three years that followed him. Suddenly, he is crucified and resurrected. The gravestone falls. The tomb is empty, and Christ resurrected enters. When the doors were shut, what joy to look upon him. He appears yet in another form, somehow different to such an extent that they seek confirmation. This is why he eats, to show them that he is real and not a spirit. And yet once again they believe, but they are not content. They want more. They taste as much of God as he does of the fish. All this gives rise to a question and a complaint. I shall put it in the mouths of the apostles. Quote, you were given to us, Lord, all these years, and we did not understand you. We felt that you were our teacher, a human being, and as soon as you were resurrected and appeared to us as God, we lost you. You remained with us after your resurrection for only 40 days, and at that in another form. So little, and then you ascended, and although you told us, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, Things ultimately changed, and instead of having you whom we knew and saw resurrected, you sent us your Holy Spirit, about whom you spoke, but who is unknown to us. We thank you, but why this change? All seems to be like a stumbling block to our curiosity, a trial to our human desire, a challenge to our need for God to be known to us, and if possible, to be tangible. As soon as we reach him, he escapes us. As soon as we discover him, he changes. Why should things be so difficult? Since the truth is evident, why should it not also be transparent? Why should God only be revealed and not discovered? Why should he be hidden and not apparent? No one has ever seen God. Why should he be manifested but not seen? Why, although God is offered to us, do we still long for him and can we not quench our thirst? Why should God ultimately be perceptible in some way, but not comprehensible? Why should his word be expressed in parables? Why can he not be understood when he speaks of his divinity? And why should he become even more difficult when he explains his mysteries? Why, when he is so plentiful, is his presence in our life a mere trickle? Why? When he is so close to us, within us, next to us, does he appear to be so distant? Why, when he dwells with us on earth, does he remain in heaven? Why, when we need to know him, does he remain unknown? 
Why should he be more of a question, a doubt, a wonder than an answer? Why should he be often more silent than explicit? Why should he be at times meager and not plentiful? Why should the miracle be so rare, the vision of him indiscernible in his presence a mystery? We can approach him more by accepting our ignorance of him rather than through the competence of our knowledge. In our eyes, he is thick darkness rather than light. Why should this be so? I shall not attempt to give an answer because on the one hand I do not know it, and on the other hand the question itself conceals far more truth than the answer. I shall merely attempt to hint at an answer, and, and please forgive my audacity. The answer must be fourfold. Firstly, it is related to what God is, his essence. Secondly, it is connected to what God shows us, his energy. Thirdly, it is linked to what we are, our nature. Our nature, as coarse as it is, cannot fully accommodate God's fineness and receive his mystery. And fourthly, it is related to what we have become, that is, our fallen nature. God is uncreated and immaterial. Angels are created but immaterial. We are both created and material. God's fine, immaterial, uncreated nature is incompatible with the unrefined nature of this world and man's narrow logic. When the unknown becomes known, it degenerates. When the super-rational becomes rational, it loses its value. When the mystery becomes apparent, it is undermined. Therefore, while God can be communed of, his essence is incommunicable. While he is offered given to the world, we cannot partake of his essence, but we can partake of his energies. 2. God's otherness. It is very important for us to understand that God is not what we normally consider him to be. God has a quality of otherness. This is not an otherness which makes him alien or distant, but an otherness which distinguishes him from us. God is not what comes to mind or what we consciously want him to be. He is beyond our wants, even further beyond our capabilities, above our understanding. It is a grave mistake, a mistake made by all of us, the mistake of our lives, to think that we can reduce him to a cognitive object, an argument, a proof, that is to make him comprehensible and able to be contained in our mind. We must come to understand and reach an inner acceptance of this important truth before encountering him. In the words of St. John Damascene, God is infinite and incomprehensible, and all that is comprehensible about him is his infinity and incomprehensibility. And when he condescends to become like us, we cannot become used to him. We do not acquire boldness. We do not put our trust in our own ability to make him our own, even if he offers himself to us. God is not an other, a stranger, as he indwells in our life, but we sense his otherness in terms of our own will, ability, and possibility to comprehend and approach him. God is not human. Divine energies are not human. This otherness of God makes him familiar as regards the way in which he is offered to us and not the way in which we approach him. If we pay attention, and this is a very important point, we will realize that it is not only God who is other, life too is something other than what we imagine it to be.
The truth is different from what we feel it to be. Others are different from what we consider them to be. We ourselves are something different from what we suspect. Even our confession has a psychoanalytical character. It demonstrates our ignorance of ourselves. And here's the irony of it. Instead of going to a spiritual father so he can tell us who we are, we begin to describe a supposedly accurate picture of ourselves. What a mistaken way to act. What a mistaken state of mind. But nor should the spiritual father try to understand who we are. If he does, he will do us an injustice. He will disrespect the mystery. He will affront God. A soul always has hidden secret corners. It has its otherness, its, its own sacred character. Our personhood is safeguarded behind its secrets, which are hidden even from our own selves. Nature itself also presents a certain otherness. It too is hiding. In physics, we say that the greater the accuracy we achieve in locating an elementary particle's position, the greater our error in determining its other characteristics. For example, its speed and momentum, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Moreover, the universe has an amazing property. As we approach its limits, these distance themselves with ever-increasing speed. Hubble's law. Nature is hiding from us. As soon as we come close to determining one of its characteristics, it conceals the remainder. If this is the case with the creation, it is even more so with the creator. Given that this occurs in nature, which is soulless, will it not occur in man who is endowed with a soul? It is an inviolable universal law. God emerges in greater truth when ignorance of him is humbly confessed than when knowledge of him is pursued. The same is true of science. It is finer and more fascinating when it is concerned with the unknown than when it elaborates and analyzes what is known. But love, too, as a relationship between people is higher when the people do not know each other completely, rather than when the boldness of acquaintance and familiarity predominates. 3. God's bounty and overabundance. God is offered to us in another form. He is plentiful and overabundant. He is an abyss, an ocean, an ever-flowing stream, a gushing spring. It is impossible for God, who is everything, not to be plentiful. It is impossible for God, who is perfect, to hide from us. God is plentiful in quality, in quantity, in his measure, in his divinity. He is overabundant in his love. He is copious and full in his life. God ultimately gave that which he had forbidden. Adam and Eve to taste. It is that which is experienced by the church to become as God. God is so bountiful that he created that which did not exist. He created out of nothing. Through his incarnation, he became that which he was not. Being God, he became man. In the passion, we see something more. God accepted that which should not have happened and which he did not want. To become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 This is the extent of God's humility. At the resurrection, he goes one step further. He offers that which he did not expect and were not awaiting. Finally, in Hades, he is triumphant. 
He conquers the devil without annihilating him and thus grants to the entire creation the gift of greater freedom. Satan is conquered. Death is conquered. But neither is annihilated. Both death and the devil exist. This is God's freedom, and this is the excess, the overabundance, the bounty of God. God also manifests the bounty of his nature elsewhere through the beauty and loveliness of nature, the splendor and wonder of creation, even if nature continually verifies the corruption which dominates the world through earthquakes, disasters, devastations, and floods. The heavens declare the glory of God. God can be manifest through human kindness, also the kindness of those whom we consider bad people, even, even though all of us as human beings, good or and bad, continually bear witness to the fall and sin and confirm their stamp upon us. He can also be manifest through the sanctity of history, even through his, though history appears to be a constant attestation to the general domination of the rulers of the darkness of this world, the devil. Finally, God can also be manifest through the abyss of eternity, even though eternity is inconceivable to and distant from our nat natural self. Through nature, through their fellow men and women, through history and the events of this world, through eternity, the saints can see not merely his traces, but his presence, his dominion in the world, the riches of his goodness. God is bountiful. He is not meager. He is meager if we reduce him to an argument, a thought, an expression, or an opinion. He is bountiful if we, he is approached with trust, acceptance, anticipation, and with a humble stance. God appears in his bounty to all who give abundantly. Such are the martyrs. The martyrs had a profound experience of God and hence gave their whole selves, their blood. Such are the myrrh They too had a powerful experience of God and this is why they could not wait and ran very early in the morning and while it was still dark, overcoming reason, their natural fears, the inhibitions of their gender, their very selves. Hence when they went to venerate the Lord, dead in the tomb, they met him resurrected. Such are the holy saints who denied this life, this world, and gave whatever they had, even though this may have been insignificant and unimportant, in order to be able to enjoy God's bounty. God often gives much. It seems that he gives not the few things which we consider we deserve are necessary, but the many of which we're not aware, yet which we can bear, which we truly need and ultimately desire. He is not only extremely bountiful because of what he is, he is also bountiful because of what he gives. And he gives and scatters gifts to us all. Just as he himself created the world, so too has he given to man this creative generative element. We too produce offspring. This does not mean that they are our own possessions that adorn our lives for a few years and then disappear. But we give birth to souls with eternal prospects and thus God can repeat himself in us. Each one of us is not only a creation or a descendant of God the Creator, but he himself becomes a co-creator. So we ourselves are able not only to give birth to people, but to give birth to something even greater, our own self, our personhood, our hypostases, through humility, even more, he makes us worthy of experiencing his presence within us. In other words, of resurrecting him within us. What does this mean? 
God is dead within us when we believe him to be meager, alien, intangible, and abstract. He is resurrected when we experience his bounty, his rich presence, his overabundant protection, his grace, and the possibility of partaking of his divinity. He himself was incarnate. He became man. He gave us, as human beings, the possibility to become gods. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Encountering God Through Transcendental Risks, lecture given by Metropolitan Nicolaeus, continued. The Variety of God's Manifestations and Expressions In his meetings with each person, God manifests himself in unprecedented ways. Each person and each manifestation marks something new, something unique. Just as an almost infinite number of different zygotes can result from the fertilization of an ovum by a spermatozoan, each with its own unique genetic features. And just as humans, however similar, have a unique appearance, so too is each one of us endowed with the potential and has the opportunity to give a new expression to the divine person in this world. Thus, God appears distant because his presence in our lives and souls is still unknown and vague. However, as soon as the meeting with him occurs, a new, original manifestation of God will appear. This is the meaning of an encounter with God. He is no longer a question, the subject of philosophical inquiry and doubt, but an experience. He is no longer distant and difficult, but familiar and easy. He becomes he who is in us, 1 John 4.4. 4. Encountering God is like tasting of the formerly forbidden, but now blessed fruit. It was not bad for Adam and Eve to know God, but it was not the right time. Now is the time for the once forbidden fruit. Now it is bad not to taste the fruit. Now is the time for knowledge of God. Then God asks for obedience. Now he gives the opportunity. He offers opportunities. This intense desire for something new which is ignored, for the unknown which is ho however hoped for, for something great which is hidden, for the risk is nothing other than the natural power which God has placed within us so that we may meet him and experience his divine energies of which we can partake. His realm is curved, just like the universe. It is not straight and level. It is not hard and rigid. It offers infinite possibilities which give rise to and make use of our freedom. A space where the good ceases to be good, where something better exists. An atmosphere in which the lesser freedom of having choices vanishes. Here, freedom is not the ability to choose what is offered, but continually to create something better in an atmosphere of the utmost good. God is like a black hole which exists in the universe. He cannot be seen. He is ascertained. He has such a powerful gravitational field that he attracts everyone without being apparent. He does not reveal the very secret of his identity, but rather he stimulates our capacity to ascertain him and believe in him. God is noble. He hides. This is why we must search for him. His love is subject to our free will. This is why we must claim him. He is very bountiful, yet unknown. This is why we must dare to seek him. 
places of divine encounters. The Church embraces suffering and believes in the value of trials. She confesses them as opportunities. Through them, she traces God's imprints. Her experience confirms this standpoint. Her teaching justifies it. At the point where human strength ends, where ephemeral hopes crumble, where reason disintegrates, where time, our permanent companion, is stripped of its omnipotence and meaning, at the limits of human existence, there God's presence can be discerned. On the borders of the known and the unknown, the temporal and the eternal, rationality and irrationality, life and death, through dilemmas, unanswered questions, insurmountable crises, where error grapples with discovery, overwhelming defeat with victory and unbelief with faith, in hospitals, in intensive care units, in waiting rooms, in maternity wards, in cemeteries, homes for the terminally ill, in genetic engineering laboratories, in places of asceticisms, in the haunts of prayer and tears, where the pounding whys are more valuable than answers, where the humility of if and maybe is in danger of becoming indignation and blasphemy. There are the places frequented by God who is omnipresent. It is here that the encounters of God's revelation occur. It is here that the greatest meeting takes place. I shall take an example from my experience over the last few years. My work in the field of bioethics when considered rationally, is a noble, though futile effort, a discourse which is elaborated without the possibility of solutions or clear proposals, a hopeless attempt at an objective dialogue with an intensively subjective criterion. Anyone who seeks answers is following the wrong path. Anyone who is working within the confines of logical arguments has lost his direction. Truth is not hidden behind some correct answers of a committee with knowledgeable members and a good image. Rather, it is found within the embrace of a spiritual father who bears the sins of others as if they were his own, who does not reprimand or argue, but is compassionate and discreet, who conveys humility when he speaks and hope when he is silent, who does not give rational solutions to dilemmas or problems, but seeks enlightenment from God. When a divorced woman is found pregnant at 40, the dilemma between social deadlock and abortion can drive her mad. What will she say to her older children, or how will she face her respectable parents or her colleagues at work? On the other hand, how can she commit an act which she has always silently condemned and found repulsive? How will she become part of something she had always rejected and never imagined of herself? What advisor, what priest, what psychologist, what person can carry such a burden? Only the one who can reveal pathways which you had never considered, possibilities which you had never suspected, prospects which you had never approached. Behind crimes is concealed repentance. Behind deadlock is ensured a sign. Behind irrationality can be detected your reason, which was lost, but is so valuable your unknown self. When the need for your loved one to be relieved of the unbearable pain of his physical illness is set against your desire to prolong the sharing of your love, how can the ethics of euthanasia cast light on this dilemma? How can any wise advice answer the endless questions pounding in your head? 
when our love for our child, who, as we were told, is brain dead, clashes with our compassion and hope in our fellow humans who wait for a transplant, how can worldly logic help us overcome the insecurity of critical decisions or the pain of our trials? Our inner rift can only be surpassed through the undeniable experience of God's presence. The other logic. We must find our own path in discovering the, quote, other logic. This is not difficult. Inorganic nature itself safeguards its finest secrets in a metaphysical way. It defends itself against the harshness of determinism and of the senses through mechanisms which reveal laws and principles that reverse natural logic. Thus, in the microcosm, determinism is replaced by uncertainty, Heisenberg's principle, while in the macrocosm, the dominance of the absolute gives way to relativity, theory of relativity. On the contrary, the logic of God converts the apparent vagueness of his presence into certainty. God is not an abstract idea in which one must believe, nor is he the personification of goodness at which one must marvel, nor is he a distant entity which one must discover. God is a person whom each one of us must encounter. He appears in another form as regards his image, yet he reveals himself to those who have been able to transcend their logic and nature. The logic of the gospel is permeated by the logic of the cross. Quote, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 23-24 In the Orthodox tradition, the crucified Christ is the King of glory. The logic of the centurion and the thief constitutes the cornerstone of the logic of God. They did not believe in a teacher, nor in a miracle worker, nor yet in a resurrected human being. They believed in a crucified God. But how are these are these sayings? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 9.24 Or, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9.35 Related to common human logic. Who settles for last place when he wishes to be first? Who assents consciously in advance to the loss of his life when he wishes to gain it? What founder of a new religion, however true and beautiful, would begin his invitation by urging his representatives to rely more on enlightenment from God and less on their own abilities or preparation? Quote, when people bring you before synagogue leaders, rulers, or authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, because at that time the Holy Spirit will teach you what you are to say. Luke 12, 11-12 Consider the beatitude regarding the poor and those who weep. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Luke 6.21 Or the commandment, Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Matthew 5.39 What are these if not foolish, but the keystones of a logic which transports man from his love of the passions and subjection to death 
to a meeting with God? How can the church, which continually teaches the communion of the faithful, at the same time promote the seclusion of monastics? How does she understand the logic of those who do violence against their nature and the flesh and accept the life of ascetics when she teaches that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in us? 1 Corinthians 6.19 How is the church's preaching about measure and moderation consistent with her admiration for the transcendence of human nature? Super-rational reason bears no relation to claims, comparisons, or authoritative opinions. It equates enemies with friends, death with life, and time with eternity. It transforms the here and now into everywhere and forever. It transforms human weakness into strength, natural fear into spiritual boldness, anxiety into faith and hope. The seemingly grievous commandments of the gospel into a yoke which is easy and the servitude of the flesh into freedom in God. It gives a divine savor to all things human. It makes man God, lowercase g. Quote, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Abba Anthony once said that the time is coming when people will lose their logic, and if they see someone who has not lost his logic, they will rise up against him, saying that he is mad because he does not resemble them. The Risk I shall close with an excerpt from my recently published book, Mount Athos, The Highest Placed on Earth. This description of a meeting with a person of the other logic as an epilogue to this meeting between us perhaps constitutes the best prologue to a meeting with God. Quote, it was already getting late, and we also had to go and visit Father Herodian, a Romanian hermit who was either a fool for Christ or he wasn't a man. Within ten minutes we had reached his rubbish tip. The sun had already set. In a ruin of a building that was full of refuse, we met a new hero. A man of 82, he stood in the doorframe that had no door. His feet and hands were resting against one side while he had leaned his back up against the other. He would spend hours in that position. He wasn't wearing a habit. A woolen vest and a tattered pair of trousers covered his sanctified body. There was litter everywhere. You couldn't see the floor. There was a layer of tins, plastic bags, corks, bottle tops, pipes, peel, and whatever else that was pips, whatever else one could imagine, about 30 centimeters thick or even more. This was the precious carpet in his mysterious little palace. It was, of course, also his mattress, if that is he slept lying down. The walls were splattered with coffee and orange juice stains. And instead of domestic animals, there were all kinds of insects, flies, bugs, and rodents. Your blessing, father, my naive fellow traveler said cheerfully. The blessing of the Lord, he calmly replied. This heroic ascetic did not appear bothered by his ecological surroundings in the least. We have brought you a little food to eat as a form of blessing, my friend the monk continued without hesitating. Oh, good fathers, big thanks you. I thanks you, good fathers, big thanks you, he replied. 
taking the bag with the food and continuing to repeat these words with particular force and expressiveness. Big thanks you, big thanks you. He started to throw the tomatoes and peaches over our heads against the walls of his hut. As I looked at the juice trickling down and ducked my head to avoid the volleys, I was completely at a loss. I was trying to understand what was the logic behind his thankfulness and the meaning of this unusual form of monasticism. After breaking the spaghetti into two and pouring out the contents of the packet and throwing the biscuits as far as he could, shouting, Let the birds eat! Let the birds eat! He began to talk about Judas's betrayal of Christ, the Holy Cross, and in between inarticulate cries to glorify the name of God. It had already begun to get dark. In a while, we wouldn't be able to see the spectacle. We would miss what Father Herodian appeared to be. But in the darkness of my own mind, I had begun to have an inkling of what all this concealed, the rubbish, the nonsensical words, and the totally unfathomable human reason of the man who was a fool for the love of Christ. I remembered the writings of Abba Isaac, who describes how these heroic saints live Quote, in external disorder while having internal order. And concludes, quote, May God count us worthy of this insanity. So was this the other human reason, the logic that Father Paisios had told me about? I looked back to catch one more glimpse of him. His naturally ugly face had a wildness that came from his way of life. It was shining in some transcendental manner as a result of the grace of God. The radiance was so great that my earthen eyes and my blind heart were compelled to see unusual and unfamiliar visions of another kind and another world. His mysterious countenance lies deeply embedded in my memory. I left and dived back into the rubbish of myself. He remained there, stepping on the rubbish of the logic of this world. I thought of him and was filled with admiration at his heroism and powers of endurance. Even now, while I can appreciate its worth and greatness, I cannot grasp the workings of his logic. For certain reason is a greater aberration than the foolishness of the fool for Christ. Perhaps, however, the cross of reason is heavier than the cross of a Father Herodian. I dared project the logic, the prestige, and the refinement of my then recent experience of Harvard and MIT onto the university of rubbish and foolishness. When I did so, the rubbish began to give out the fragrance of flowers, the insects to turn into birds, the ripped plastic bags into degrees and academic papers, and Father Herodian began to appear much more, quote, intelligent and successful than my Nobel Prize winning professors. Their logic seemed like a racing car. The logic of the fool for Christ is like a rocket. A car can go up to 200 miles per hour. A rocket travels at 18,000 miles an hour and above. A car moves along the ground. A rocket shoots straight upwards. 
With a car, if you go beyond its limits, you will crash. With a rocket, if you surpass its limits, you launch yourself. You overcome the gravity of the earth. You escape. You free yourself. As fast as logical and rational people go, they still remain earthbound. Father Herodian left this world without having touched the earth, without the earth having touched him. Amin. Investing in the kingdom of God continued. Not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which is at work in you. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, excerpts from the discussion with Vasilius Argiaris on the program Anthropos Mothorios, radio station of the Church of Piraeus, 5th through the 6th of February 2003. Metropolitan Nicolaeus. Our age tends to be rationalistic and guided by knowledge, a fact which overemphasizes man's intellectual faculties. However, if we want to be honest with ourselves, we will realize the inadequacy of this prevailing rationalism. The mind is too narrow to accommodate supernatural concepts. If we were to use an example, we would say that the mind plays the role of a printer, while spiritual messages enter and are analyzed in the heart. The realm of the heart is far more expansive and has a far greater capacity than thought. Thought exists principally in order to express and assist with the work of the heart. Of course, it is very difficult in a society like ours, where even emotions are intellectualized, for someone to be able to think with the heart, to conceive messages directly in his heart. However, it is striking that this truth, which is so difficult to conceive of, yet so important, does not concern only spiritual matters, but even scientific matters. Good scientific research is based not so much on intelligence as on intuition. The Church's steadfast belief is that mysteries transcend the capabilities of thought. They certainly cannot be understood through a narrow rationalistic approach. A mystery is something that surpasses the measure of man and the limits of his perception. However, the more one humbles oneself before the mystery, the more one draws near to it. And the more one becomes acquainted with it, the more one feels that the realm of the unknown is expanding. The unknown is not confined by limits, which is why the mystery always remains inscrutable. The logic of the church is based on mystery. She does not fear it. Mysteries are beyond us. They hint at and attract us to another kind of life. The mystery of the Lord's incarnation cannot be easily understood, regardless of the angle from which it is approached. It cannot be expressed verbally or conceived of through our intellectual capacities. You try to understand it and cannot. You humble yourself and it is revealed to you. This revelation is so powerful that it confirms that faith as a path to knowledge is more complete than thought. Patristic texts are also read through the perspective of faith. We do not read them in order to learn, in order to memorize them as if we were taking an exam, nor yet do we read them in order to put into practice whatever they say, since we cannot put into practice much of what they say. We read them so that we may be judged and humbled. When our soul is humbled, when she can weep 
at and accept her inadequacy, then she can turn and seek God's mercy more easily. When God's mercy comes, then the experience of inner transformation begins to become the new reality. What is this reality? It is God and His signs. It is whatever is reminiscent of Him and whatever proceeds from Him. He is the one that is. He is the true reality. Our passions and weaknesses are not the reality. These are a diseased reality as long as we remain attached to them. Our one goal and objective in all our striving is to pinpoint our passions and humbly ourselves before God's mercy to ask for the energy of His grace. Thus, instead of our passions, His grace will work in us and the realm of our heart will be cleansed. The Heart It would perhaps be a spiritual injustice against the mystery of man to comment on what is described in books without first being exposed to the experience of these matters. Those who can speak from experience about the heart are those who have been cleansed through the prayer of the heart. They do not need to read any books. They live in the heart. They experience those things which are spoken of by the fathers and by the Lord himself. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Luke 10:27. And blessed are the pure in heart. Matthew 5:8. Nevertheless, it is worth saying even a few things while remembering that what one has to say comes from the little knowledge that we all more or less have, whether from direct experience or yearning and inner searching. Firstly, the bodily organ of the heart is not alien to the spiritual experience of the heart, since man is a psychosomatic being. The body and soul coexist and influence one another. Thus, one can understand the mystery of the heart from the heartbeat alone. Let us imagine, for example, an ascetic who is in his small cell. It is evening and in an atmosphere of absolute stillness. He has begun his vigil with a desire to encounter God. He sits still with his prayer rope in his hand and lets his heart remain free and his mind clear. He does not have the cares of those living in the world. He feels no bitterness for his brothers and fellow men. He has no immediate problems which he must resolve, nor intense movements of inner passions. He is not troubled by feelings of inferiority, insecurity, nor by fears. He has no dreams, needs, or earthly desires. The only thing which is dominant within and around him is the presence of God. That is what he desires, not so that he may enjoy the experience of his presence, nor because he somehow deserves it or wishes to attain it, but because he feels the need to be humbled before God so that he can work in his heart. He must diminish himself so that God may appear. The place and moment must be sanctified by the mystery of the Incarnation. He does not want to speak with him but to feel his presence and to be released in his embrace. So he sits. And as his inner world is cleansed of everything else, he hears the only thing that remains as a humble reminder of the natural man, his heartbeat. All our senses, all our bodily functions, all our organs are not perceptible. 
We are not aware of our kidneys, nor our liver, nor our brain. It is only our lungs that we sense from the rhythm of our breathing and the rise and fall of the chest, and our heart from its beating through touch and hearing. Thus, when the prayer of the ascetic follows the rhythm of his breathing, this function too becomes imperceptible. He is not aware of it, because as he breathes in and out, he surrenders himself to the workings of prayer. And perhaps then he hears the heart, since it is only at that moment that it is heard. This final intimation to the ascetic that he is also a natural man is very soothing. He does not deny his nature, for it exists in order to humble us. God has given it to us. It is an inheritance of his creation and his great gift to be his creatures. We would not want to be uncreated, incorporeal, or something we are not, but only that which he, in his wise judgments, has made us. We take comfort in the thought that we are as he created us, bearing a material body. Thus we encounter the fact of our creation. We discover our nature. This peaceful, humbling experience occurs at the moment of prayer, as one hears the heartbeat, as described above. Of course, inner and outer stillness and certain condi conditions of life are required for the prayer of the heart. This cannot be achieved by a housewife in the kitchen or a teacher in the classroom. An attempt of this kind would only prove harmful to the soul. But how wonderful it is to know that certain people, his own people, like this ascetic, practice inner quietude. For in the night they commune with their own heart, and their spirit makes diligent search. Psalm 77, verse 6. That they are striving to approach God and struggle unceasingly to transcend the coarseness of our nature by preserving always a blessed vestige of it. They nurture the whole world with what is beyond, further, and greater than the visible world. This is the state of the pure heart, which does not save only one person, the ascetic, but is shared by and allows the gift of the church to be shared out to the entire world. Another meaning that the fathers imply by the term heart is emotion, our emotional world. It is the seat of all those elements which express the soul's insensitive aspect or power. However, by the term heart, the fathers mean something far deeper and more in internal. The heart of man's hypostases, personhood, what man is precisely, the seat of holy ways, in whose heart are the ways of them. Psalm 84, verse 5. The source of sacred desires, the center of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Mark 12, 30. It is the deepest and innermost part of each person, the part where we encounter God. The heart broadens, opens, widens, and thus we speak of the enlargement of the heart a very beautiful expression which one encounters in both the Old and New Testaments. It means that one's soul is open, one widens one's inner world and can accept the grace of God. One can accommodate events, relationships, and truths, and can find room for one's brothers. One can bear joy and sorrow. In other words, the enlargement of the heart means that a person is receptive and accommodating can forgive, endure, forbear his brother, 
and await God. God does not hurry. He does not support us in our impatience. He wants us to wait for him patiently, just as he himself is long-suffering and waits. This opening of the heart, which fills man with joy and inner rejoicing, is the enlargement of the heart. Keeping the Commandments It is true that our age does injustice to a great blessing given to us by God, the blessing of the commandments. It considers that the keeping of the commandments is a mechanical, superficial kind of morality and that it promotes pietism. But it is not so. If we pay attention, we will see that the gospel and patristic writings, as well as the experience of the church, are full of exhortations to keep the commandments. They define holiness as, amongst other things, an expression of the keeping of the commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14:15 says the Lord himself. The effort to keep the commandments makes our doubts and distorted self-image fade away and allows us to come face to face with our own weaknesses. Often we might read a book, take part in a fine discussion, speak of the enlargement of the heart, or the spiritual states of the mind, only shortly afterwards to be interrupted by our husband or wife at home and to react with tension and annoyance. What is the meaning, then, of all these discussions? We hold our prayer rope in our hand or keep the fasts because this is what we have learned to do. But we cannot keep the commandments of love, patience, mutual forbearance, and forgiveness. Although we appear to have a kind of monastic traditionalism, we are very hard-hearted people. It is the commandments and the struggle to keep them that soften the soul like the pounding of a hammer. They are there for two reasons. Firstly, in order to humble us, and secondly, in order to show us our course in life. What a struggle it is to keep just one of the commandments. What an effort. It is easier to read a passage from the Philokalia or from the ascetic writings of Abba Isaac and think that we have understood it and have reached a supposed, quote, spiritual state than to try not to say one of those lies that we call conventional lies or to accept our child as he is or to show tolerance toward our parents and to one another. We realize that it is very difficult to keep the commandments, and so we are humbled before this fact. Moreover, the commandments also function as signposts on our path. On mountain roads, one often sees poles with fluorescent markings to the left and right of the asphalt that are there in order to show where the road is when it is covered in snow. The commandments serve the same purpose. They show us where we are heading. It is therefore very important to seek with the support of a spiritual father, the commandments which one must strive to keep in one's life. In this way, a person is continually instructed in his specific struggle. He does not easily justify himself when he is not successful, nor is he indifferent. He stands before the truth with integrity. He does not lie. Nor does he delude himself, but he sees which of these commandments he must put into practice, and to what degree. Therefore he discerns his path, and subsequently asks through prayer for the divine energies and God's blessing. If one of the commandments can be transformed into a personal experience, this may happen only through the grace of God.
In the spiritual life, the virtues are not an acquisition nor an achievement, but a gift of God and a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is for us to give our assent and trust in His grace. The Humbling of the Self We do not read the lives of the saints, the Senaxarion, in order to put their example into practice. It is impossible to apply everything we read in our own lives. For example, we, who are unable to stand for even an hour in church, cannot imitate St. Lipios the Stylite, who lived on a pillar for 53 years. But as we read his life, we say, God, what grace you gave to this person! How did he have such endurance, patience, and zeal? What love his soul must have had! Then we pray to the saint, Saint of God, intercede for us. And at once we return to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us. This prayer emerges unprompted when inspired by the magnificent example of a person who lives in Christ and is endowed with divine grace. So we read a passage which speaks of ascetic achievements or a martyr's life, of supreme expressions of love for God, and we humbly compare ourselves with this measure. This comparison facilitates humility and attracts the grace of God. The audacity of thinking that we comprehend God's mysteries or the false experience of blessed states disappears. At other times, when in, in ascetic texts we encounter the spirit of wisdom contained in the expression, all are saved, only I am lost. At once we elevate others within us and belittle ourselves. Others are superior in our heart and thought. They are saved at the same time that we are lost through our own fault. How can criticism, pride, and hardness of heart flourish when we have this kind of disposition or mindset? There is also another way for one to cultivate inner humility. Our ego is expressed either volitionally as a demand or emotionally as a right and as oversensitivity or intellectually as a stubborn opinion or and as a rigid attitude. In coddling our ego, we cannot listen to our brother and hence are unable to hear the voice of God. We refuse to understand and adopt the other person's will in our lives and thus have difficulty in accepting the will of God. Our brothers were given to us as images of God in our lives. In allowing their will to pass into our lives, we make it easier for God's will to be adopted in our very lives. In considering their rights rather than our own, we perceive God's right in our life. In listening to their opinion with respect, we allow God's illumination to work in us. Thus, when someone fears his own will, does not trust his judgment and denies his own rights, he remains protected against all these three, and his ego begins to constrict. He becomes humbled and liberated at the same time. There is no enemy and adversary in the spiritual life. There is only one enemy, our very selves. There is only one sickness, our egoism. In battling against our egoism, we gradually build up an atmosphere of humility within us. Sometimes we comprehend our egoism as vainglory, at other times as self-praise, pathological self-love, or egocentricity, 
Sometimes we experience it in a very obvious form, such as anger and arrogance, at other times in very subtle forms, such as oversensitivity, a tendency to complain and be offended, and so on. A small example is sufficient to demonstrate the extent of this hidden ego and this invisible lack of freedom. If we happen to look at a photograph of five individuals, including ourself, which person will we look for first and recognize in the photograph? Surely ourself. If the background colors and expressions of all the people in the photograph happen to be remarkable, but our eyes are slightly closed, then we do not like the photograph, whereas everyone else likes it. This is something that shows how our ego functions in subtle, subtly hidden ways. Similarly, our tendency to justify ourselves is very strong. We cannot bear to be wronged. Moreover, we cannot tolerate people who have a character incompatible with our own. They make our lives difficult. We do not realize that although good people, so-called uh, virtuous, easygoing people, are our neighbors and brothers, difficult people, so-called sinners who are perhaps lacking in virtue, who irritate and provoke us, are even better because they are the beloved brothers of Christ. We have difficulty in accepting this reality and therefore refuse to be the friends, the brothers of Christ, who is wronged. We experience all of this daily in our lives, either in specific forms or ways, or in moments of stillness, when we feel that our ego is like fog hindering the manifestation of God. As we said earlier, it is principally our point of view as an opinion, our right as an emotion, and our will as a volitional expression of our pathological egoism that are very intense within us. It is good to fight these. We go to our spiritual father. We are obedient. We struggle as much as we can and thus cultivate a philosophical mind. We could say that we need to acquire a spiritual mind. Normally, we are experts as regards our ability to detect the weaknesses and passions of others, while we are entirely blind in facing our own. In this way, however, we do an injustice to ourselves and to our relationship with God. We hamper his right to transform us from images into likenesses of him. The Will of God The will of God is an expression of his holy volition. God wants all people to be saved and come to know the truth fully. 1 Timothy 2.4 His will is our salvation and knowledge of his truth. The commandments to which we referred earlier and the keeping of them or at least our desire to live in the spirit of God's commandments, define his holy will and grant the illumination which is essential for knowledge of his truth. It is, of course, true that our lives are full of dilemmas, opportunities, and possibilities which challenge our freedom especially, and even choices which often oblige us to facilitate between our own will and the recognition of his will. For each person, for each situation, for each moment, God offers as his will infinite possibilities which nevertheless all express his volition. This is why God's will does not resemble our own egotistical will. It does not exist in order to bind our freedom, but in order to call it into play and bring it to life. Our one will abolishes our freedom and enslaves it to our ego. God's infinite wills 
help us to discover freedom as the supreme gift. The subjection and identification of our volition to and with God's illumines the mind, engenders decisiveness, and reveals the true person. This spirit is expressed by a wonderful single thoughtful prayer. Lord, make me whomever you want and as you want, whether I want it or not. If a person can pray in his heart in this way, is it possible to wonder what the will of God is? God has infinite wills which he offers to each one of us as opportunities and possibilities. When we identify with his volition, then we discern the will which we can choose and decide clearly. Worldly morality, the morality of the ancient Greek philosophers, was founded on the subjection of nature to man's volition. Conversely, spiritual morality is based on the subjection of human volition to God's volition. The former gives rise to egotism, the latter to humility, which attracts the grace of God. Thus man in his entirety, soul and body, nature and spirit, is subjected to God's grace. In this way he becomes a partaker of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, and known of God, Galatians 4, verse 9. The Church's Embrace one cannot come to know God through cognitive methods. God is not a mathematical equation which is there to be solved. He is truly a mystery which is revealed in our hearts. As humans, we approach him through this deeper inner process which ultimately causes us to become open to his grace and blessing. Nowadays, we drown in the problems of this life. Our child is sick. Our work is going badly. We find it difficult to have a child or to find someone to marry. Or we get married and then some misfortune befalls us that puts an end to our life together. At other times we are troubled by our relationship with our children or parents or anxious about what we will study or and whether, where, or when we will find a job. We are worried about our children or about siblings who are behaving strangely. We come face to face with mental illness. All of these are fundamental everyday problems which are multiplied by our way of life and the modern social outlook and climate. Problems of this kind make us think that God is absent. This arises from our belief in a God who is a servant to our daily needs. We become ill and ask him to make us well. Or we worry about our university examinations and we want him to help us pass. It is essential for us to understand that this anthropomorphic God whom we have created and who reminds us to a large extent of the human weaknesses of ancient Greek gods does not exist. We are all more or less people in pain. Our life contains tears, doubts, or anxiety and worries which multiply daily. Some find an outlet in psycho psychologists and psychiatrists, or they seek the advice of family members or friends whom they trust. In our country, that is Greece, however, despite opposition, a large number of people still put their trust in the church. They consider the church to be their mother, and they want to draw near to and entrust their problems to her. Thus people come to the church so that she can resolve their problems, which often reveal the state of their soul. 
the church embraces their pressing everyday problems with great understanding. She wants to help people truly and essentially. So at the same time, she gives one the opportunity to face one's inner world, to see one's spiritual potential, and to become aware of one's soul's needs. A problem which may oppress one person may serve as a blessing to another. It is very important for us to understand this, not so that we may change our behavior, but so that we may change our state of mind, that is, so that we may acquire a deeper awareness of matters. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 and 13, Psalms 117, verse 5, to continue. Father Paisios used to say the following, Every time there is a knock on my door, my soul aches. A third of people's problems concern divorce. Another third are to do with cancer or illnesses. And the remaining third with psychological problems. What can one say to all these people? Perhaps we need to understand that the power of the church is not only her word, but primarily her prayer. A former fellow student of mine once paid me a visit, and as he left, he said, Listen, you became a monk and priest. I got married. I have no end of problems. I have no time to pray. So you will pray for me. How wonderful it is to be able to entrust one's life to the prayer of the church, either in her liturgical prayer in the services or in the prayer of certain people who can pray in their cells. In my ministry, I've come across some elderly ladies and men in whose hearts I discovered the treasure of God's grace. So sometimes when others entrust their serious problems to me, I go to them to ask for their support. I have greater confidence in their prayers than in my own. If only we had more monasteries near us, that is, people who truly reach God's throne by praying and who envelop our struggle through the power of their prayers. The pastoral work of prayer is far greater than the pastoral work of the word, although that does not mean that words are not needed. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 7. However, in the church all things are shared in common. Our virtues, our sins, and our struggles are common. In the church, it is this spirit that we experience a problem. Today, I suffer the loss of my child, and tomorrow, someone else will face problems at work. So, we all struggle through our problems and allow God to give us his solution in each case. He may give it through a thought, through our children, through a person who is not in the church, through an inner sign, through something we read. Moreover, we should not forget that God also enlightens our spiritual father, particularly when we rely more on his enlightenment than our own. Of course, our spiritual father must be truly spiritual. He must be a father, a priest. He must be able to celebrate the liturgy, to pray and to know how to trust in God and not simply be a social worker with a religious hobby. A spiritual father is not a counselor who gives advice. He is not a teacher who teaches, nor a public prosecutor who passes judgment. A spiritual father is a father who embraces, a friend who liberates, a brother who forgives. He is a priest who serves 
the mystery of the soul. He is not someone who knows. He is someone who loves God as his father and who loves each person as a child of God. A spiritual father has the grace of priesthood, provided he keeps it alive and active within him. If he preserves it in this way, then God replies abundantly and in many ways. We priests are servants, ministers, nothing more. As soon as we realize this, we become rugs on which God treads. We become doormats on which the people of God step so that we can collect dirt and they can enter the church clean. This is our ministry. It is so wonderful when we become aware of this and do not try to accomplish something on our own. But if God enlightens us, then he makes us act according to his spirit, since he is the one acting through us. How sacred the soul is. A spiritual father approaches the soul just as he approaches the holy bread at the moment that he says, let us attend the holy things unto the holy. This he raises up with his two fingers, that is, with the fewest possible movements. He offers it to God and sets it down. He does the same with the soul. He does not intervene clumsily, injuring and controlling her, but simply touches her. He offers her the respect that she deserves, since she is in the image of God and places her back on the patent of her freedom in God's mercy. Here, just as in the Holy Eucharist, the priest is called to bring about the change. He takes the human person, shattered, broken, fragmented as a result of sin, crushed by his ordeals, and exposes him to God's grace, which in turn transforms him. This is the holy service of the human soul. We said above that in the church everything is shared in common. It is this spirit that our relationship with the saints, the intercessions of the saints, is to be understood. Our requests to the saints for their intercession bring us closer to them. It is not just a technical method. We ask the saints to intercede and God grants us our request. God doesn't work in this way. God does not function through the saints' requests, but through their relationship with us. We do not want salvation to be our own achievement only, to be something that we alone will try to attain through our weak capabilities. Therefore, we pray in the following manner. Saints of God, intercede for us. We want to have you as fellow combatants in our struggle. We want you to have a share in its successful outcome as our older brothers, our protectors. We all desire to be partakers in the life and work of the church. You have the boldness to speak before God. You were well-pleasing to him. Therefore, lead and we shall follow. This is the conscience of the church. It is so precious to us to share the need and desire for our salvation with the saints. It is so much better for salvation not to be an achievement of each person separately, but the gift of a common struggle. It is such a blessing for God, too, to see this common course, for him not to see each person struggling alone, falling, perishing, but the whole church, militant and triumphant, 
being at the side of each one of us, for each of the faithful to seek the blessing of his spiritual father, his own mother, of the friends who love him, of the saints who are alive and have boldness before God. This is not merely a beautiful idea conceived by someone who is not a rationalist. It is the living experience of the church. In addition, each struggling person of faith does not only have the saints at his side, he has his guardian angel, not an abstract sense of an angel, but the faith and experience that at his side, he has his angel, who also carries the weight of his spiritual struggle. Moreover, we have our patron saint. We have the saints of the church in which we minister or of the parish in which we pray. We have the saints whom we revere because we have visited their shrines and there experienced a certain blessed state. Saint Nectarios of Egina, or Saint Seraphim of Sarovsky, or some other saint. We have those saints whose lives we have read and who have moved us. We have the blessing of our spiritual fathers. We are all struggling together. This is the meaning of our struggle in the church, that it is taking place in the church and with the church. It is in this way that we draw strength. And God, seeing this communion of the faithful and the saints within the church, violates his own laws, overturns his apparent plans, and is moved more by our common struggle than by any request of ours. The saints do not intercede only in times of difficulty, but also in times of success. We share the gift just as we share the trial. This does not bring about pride, but gives rise to humility. All this is confirmed by the experience of the church. It is not a sophisticated teaching, but a living experience. The church experiences the effectiveness of the saints' intercessions. She experiences the constancy with which the saints advance our request at God's throne. And he responds when we entrust our struggle and salvation to their boldness before God. The saints do not die. They never cease to exist. They intervene in and follow our lives. This is the reason why we call them universal. They are eternal. They are not restricted by time, nor space, nor by their individuality. Their gift embraces the whole church. This is why we ask God to have mercy upon us through their intercessions. An example from the writings of Abba Barsanufius is characteristic. Some people ask the saint, why does God not wreak his wrath on us, given that we live in this wretched and distorted way? The saint then reveals an impressive fact to them. He tells them that the prayers of three saints meet at God's throne, those of a certain Elias from Corinth, a certain John from Rome, and someone from Jerusalem. This is very possibly Barsanufius himself. That is to say, the saint knew the origins of the prayers which met before God, who put up his sword into the shield thereof. First Chronicles 21, verse 27. It is a metaphorical image which demonstrates the effectiveness of the prayers of the saints, of those alive, as seen above, as well as those who now belong to the church triumphant and whose inheritance we long for in our lives. It is within the context of sharing all things in the church that miracles may be understood. 
The significance of a miracle does not lie on healing just one person, but on God's manifestation to all. In day-to-day discourse, the word miracle means something striking, which abolishes the laws of nature, overturns human logic, and imposes itself on us in an entirely impressive manner. For example, we have not seen a dead man being resurrected. Hence, something of the kind is a miracle to our mind. Similarly, when someone is seriously ill, and doctors tell us that there is no hope, we call the fact that he is completely healed a miracle. Or we have to face an insurmountable financial problem, and in a completely unexpected and inexplicable manner, we overcome it. We call all these events miracles. However, another scriptural term seems to be more appropriate, more expressive than the term miracle for the conscience of the church. It is the word sign. A sign is not something which simply makes our lives easier, but something which manifests God. I am sick and I recover. This healing, which is so humane, constitutes the insignificant aspect of the miracle. What is truly significant is the sign that God is manifested. Both I and another fellow man are sick. Suddenly he recovers in a miraculous way. Am I joyful? Can I glorify God, firstly, because he was manifest in the life of my fellow man, and secondly, because he was healed? Or does my sorrow remain with me because I was not healed miraculously? It is the manifestation of God in our lives, not healing per se, which is important. Ultimately, each one of us should be able to say, it is better for me to be sick and to experience God's presence in my brother's life than for me to recover without experiencing his existence. Thus, a sign is that which affirms God. At one point, the Lord says, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. In other words, the world seeks a sign, but the sign which is sought will not be given. Instead, the sign which God will give is the sign of his resurrection. We ask the saints to support and heal us, and surely this is not bad. Perhaps what our soul truly needs is not to be satisfied by a miracle which heals us, yet leaves us forgetful of God. Rather, the experience of his presence is what is truly needed. This experience is the sign. Therefore, a miracle is good not because it brings healing to one person, but because it manifests God to many. If a miracle were merely a favor by God to one person, it would be unjust. God cannot heal some people and turn a deaf ear to the rest. When something miraculous happens, albeit to one person, it is God's manifestation in which we all partake that makes the miracle our personal experience. It is not tragic to depart this life without the experience of a miracle, but it is tragic to depart without a sign, without having had the experience of God within us. This life is given to us not as a trial, but as an opportunity, an opportunity to experience God from this time forward. The kingdom of God begins now, not when we close our eyes. Then it continues. Thus, signs and miracles are the occasions when the presence of God in this world is confirmed.
If only we could invest a moment in the kingdom of God and realize that the returns are extremely high. So high that in the kingdom, there is no time, no fear, no inhibition, inferiority, insecurity, nor guilt. None of those things which trouble us in this life. This is the blessing of God's freedom. It is this which we must bring to life within us here on earth until each one of us will be able to change from being temporal to being eternal, from being solely human to being spiritual. Amen. Authenticity in the Orthodox Experience Today Talk given to the Scientists' Division of the St. Basil the Great Society for Missionary Work Athens, Greece, 12th October 2003 Tonight's talk will try to touch upon the subject which is difficult to express in words, and which by nature cannot be described, but rather can only be indirectly perceived, a subject which is hidden and suspected rather than evident. Goals may be defined, but it is with difficulty that experiences may be confined within a verbal framework. This is true to an even greater extent for the authenticity of the experience of faith and divine grace for it is related to the deeper essence of human nature and truth and constitutes a mystery continually revealed to us rather than a manner of behaving to which one can adapt. When an experience is spiritually authentic, it reveals man's resemblance to God, whereas when it's not spiritually authentic, it hinders the grace of God from acting in one's life. It is for this reason that authenticity is an essential condition for the spiritual life. How then should we broach the subject of the authenticity of experience? How are we to define it? How are we to delineate it? It is clearly not an intellectual issue. Therefore, let us not focus our efforts on understanding this talk, nor keep notes so as not to forget a point, nor even subject our innocent spontaneity to the process of pedantic examination. This talk is not meant to be contemplative, in order to give rise to fine thoughts or correct critical opinions, nor persuasive, in order to compel us to agree so that we may feel comforted and content. I prefer to be simple, to speak from the heart, in order to provoke confessional and personal sentiments in each one of us. This is why everything that will be heard is not offered as knowledge or as a viewpoint, but it is a set before you as an opportunity for communion. Thus, in the course of this talk, let each one of us try to see who he or she really is and focus on the relationship we have with the truth rather than examine the accuracy of the words spoken. Let us not look at the age in which we live, but at how we live, what place Christ has in our hearts and how the distance from his grace in our lives may be determined. Let us also consider how our desires function and what terms our goals are described and how our calling as children of God, as brothers of Christ, as citizens of his kingdom, and as people who have been invited to his supper is being traced out in our lives. The word of the Lord in the gospel is quite absolute. He who is not with me is against me. No one can serve two masters. If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And unless your righteousness greatly exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord denies one of his disciples the human right to attend his father's funeral. He foretells torments and trials for all those who follow him. He censures half-heartedness. He demands the one thing which is lacking. He proposes perfection if you want to be perfect. God is absolute. He contains and offers everything which possesses fullness as well as being itself in its perfect form. He is he that is. He is everything. God's truth fills man but leaves him with the sense that this truth is beyond him and cannot be fully conceived of by humans. In this sense, God does not ask of those who wish to follow him to exceed their limits. This is complemented by his grace. But authenticity in one's assent, sincerity in one's intention, and consistency in one's decision. Only in this way can the human person become compatible with God, follow his way, and recognize his footsteps. The True Christian In Gospel readings, we often encounter the apostles invoking the authenticity of their personal witness in order to be persuasive. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we observed and touched with our own hands, we declare to you. Matthew 19, verse 21, Ephesians 4, 13, and James 1, 4. And we know that his testimony is true. John 21, 24. But the, the Samaritans and John the Baptist also have recourse to the immediacy of their personal experience. The authenticity of experience constitutes the most persuasive argument for the truth of our words. So let us look at the meaning of authentic experience in the life of a Christian. Peter is authentic even when he falls because he is spontaneous. He seeks proofs and the Lord calls him to walk on the water. His faith wavers and he sinks. He confesses spontaneously that the Lord's holy mouth utters words of eternal life. He urges the Lord to avoid the passion, and the Lord rebukes him, saying that Satan is speaking in him. With a feeling of superiority, he refuses to have his feet washed by the Lord, and then concedes in a particularly expressive manner. He violently dares to cut off Malchus's ear, and accepts the Lord's reprimand and the miraculous recovery of the ear. He denies the Lord three times shortly before the Passion and immediately repents. He hears the message of the resurrection and doubts. This is why he runs to the tomb to confirm it for himself. He falls and rises. He sins and repents. He does not pretend. He is genuine. He is free, even when he is human. He errs and is corrected. He is not infallible. He is true. An authentic person is not someone who does not make mistakes, but someone who is aware of them, confesses, and repents. However, the authentic person is not only spontaneous in his manner, he is also genuine in his faith. Faith is not an ideology which we must defend, or a thought which we must understand, or an opinion which we must accept. Faith is not an emotion, or a moral rule to which we must conform or an experience which we have imposed on ourselves psychologically, or an aim which is attained through human efforts. Faith is grace and life and truth. 
which is offered, emerges, and is revealed. It is given by God and manifests God. Man is not great because of his ability to achieve many things, but because great things can happen and be revealed to him. However, all these presuppose genuineness, trueness, and authenticity. Without these, the soul's horizon remains closed to God's grace. Of course, when we are speaking of authentic experience, it often appears that we mean something which in reality does not exist. Let us therefore see exactly who the true and genuine Christian is. In his attempt to answer the question, what kind of people should Christians be according to common sense? St. Basil the Great says the following, quote, as disciples of Christ, having as their model only what they see in him and hear from him, as holy temples of God, clean, and filled only with those things which are for the worship of God, as children of God, formed according to his image to the measure granted to men, as salt in the earth, renewing those who partake of it in the spirit unto incorruption, as the word of life for the mortification of present things, confirming the hope in true life. End quote, St. Basil the Great. To continue, he continues, What is particular to the Christian, that just as Christ died to sin once, so too should the Christian be dead to and unmoved by any sin, that he abound in righteousness in all things, that he love others just as Christ loved us, that he see the Lord before him always, that he be watchful every day and hour and be ready in the perfection which is for God's pleasure, knowing that the Lord comes at an hour that he does not expect. According to St. John Chrysostom, quote, If you are a Christian, you have no city on earth. The maker and creator of our city is God. Even if we receive the whole world, we are strangers and pilgrims to it all. We are inscribed in heaven and we are its citizens. St. John Chrysostom to the Antiochians, 17. One encounters the same absoluteness in the ascetic fathers, and naturally in the latter of St. John of Sinai, quote, a Christian is an imitator of Christ as far as humanly possible, in words and deeds and thought, believing in the Holy Trinity correctly and blamelessly. Homily 1 of St. John, the Ladder of Divine Ascent on Renunciation. The Christian experience is authentic when we love the cross more than comfort, the struggle more than the victory. When we live the kingdom of heaven as something more real than historical events, when our faith is stronger than our rationality, when we discern truth more in mysteries than in those things which we understand, when we pray more and think less, in times of difficulty, when we realize that grace is more effective than our striving or our efforts, when our brother is closer to us than ourself, when we are able to discern what is vain and what is genuine, what is false and what is true, what is of our own will and what is of God's will, when we desire death more than life. Footnotes in Nicodemus, the Hagiorite Unseen Warfare, Chapter 12, on the many desires and appetites within a man and the battle between them. To continue.
The authentic Christian lives according to both tradition and dogma. But he also has something new and original, something of his own. His distinctiveness unites and beautifies. He confirms the road of perfection because he is the community of Gentiles, which is called a plowed hill. A hill is the soul elevated by Christ's teaching. Finally, the image of the authentic person is not something which exists and each one of us must imitate. It does not exist and therefore each one of us is called to bring it to life. Authenticity expresses what a person is called to and at the same time demonstrates the sacred and unique character of personhood. Characteristics of the Authentic Christian Experience What are the characteristics of the authentic Christian experience? We shall take as the basis for our discussion the end of the first chapter of the Gospel according to John, the passage about the calling of the disciples. This passage is of particular interest because it shows how Christ calls each Christian separately and what God's grace and love ultimately offer us within the ark of salvation, that is the church. In this particular gospel passage, three callings, three invitations to three disciples are presented. The first is that of the apostle Andrew, the second that of Philip, and the third that of Nathaniel. To begin with, all three respond to the call with an outburst of spiritual enthusiasm. Andrew exclaims that we have found the Messiah. Philip runs to Nathaniel and says, We have found the man about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus. While Nathaniel addresses the Lord and says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. See John 1, verses 41, 45, 49 and 47 to continue the first characteristic of authentic experience is the sense that one has been called by god and the spontaneous response to that calling which has its seat in the guilelessness of the soul directly immediately without a second word without hesitation without rationalistic thoughts the soul recognizes god and is responsive to his call the Lord said this, Look, a genuine Israelite in whom there is no deceit. First John, I mean John 1, 47. There's no cunning, no confusion, no complexity. It is purity and simplicity that predominate in Nathaniel's heart. The Christian life is not a personal discovery or a choice of lifestyles, but a conscientious response to the divine calling. It is not a way of life but a state of grace. It is not characterized by a set of ethical rules and correct judgment, but constitutes the proof of God's love for man and the divine destination of the latter. These spontaneous spiritual outbursts are the result of a soul in pain expecting his presence. This leads us to two further characteristics. The first is the painful longing, the desire for God, the sense of needing him, the second is the expectation of his coming and visitation. This pain of the soul, the inner yearning and expectation, the deep inner anticipation, what the fathers term wound, the eating away of the soul, the continual readiness that the Lord is coming to visit my life, to enter my life, to change, to alter, to transform, to renew the characteristics of my life, 
and the features of my person constitute the proof of the authentic Christian experience. It is not change which provokes the genuine Christian experience. This could give rise to a sense of superiority and pride. It is he who brings about the change, who constitutes the guarantee of the experience and at the same time the proof of its magnificence. It is he who is made manifest through that experience. At this point, it is worth noting that the enthusiasm of the apostles was not a simple expression of joy and surprise or a, or a pure disposition, but that it had elements of a magnificent confession of faith, a confession which the church greatly treasures. From the beginning, they confessed him to be God. Andrew confessed him to be the Messiah. Philip confessed him to be he of whom Moses and the prophets spoke while Nathanael confessed him to be the son of the living God, Christ. That is not all. They went one step further. They made the people around them partakers in their faith. At once they spread the message. They made it public. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Philip addresses Nathanael with the words, Come and see. That is, he said, You too, come and see. Come and taste God's love which overflows from within us and is expressed as the subtlest and finest manifestation of our love for our fellow men, constitutes a further characteristic of the authentic Christian experience. We shall close with an additional characteristic, the readiness for martyrdom. All these apostles were martyrs. They sealed their calling with their martyrdom and the shedding of their blood. They had such spontaneity that the beginning was as easy, immediately they accepted the message and the Lord's invitation. As the end, they willingly shed their blood for him. They gave their lives to him, and just as they had followed his earthly course with ease, so did they willingly follow him in the manner of their death, being eternally united with him in his kingdom. The authenticity of the experience is not equated with a pompous manner and exuberant impression and expression of surprise or worldly admiration. The Christian experience is secret. It is deep and inward. The experience of the Canaanite woman who accepted to be compared to dogs by the Lord, the experience of Zacchaeus who publicly confessed his wrongs, the experience of the woman with the issue of blood who secretly extracted power from the Lord, are models of authenticity. No one paid attention to these people, not even the disciples. However, the Lord listens to the cries of the woman of Canaan. He himself sees and calls Zacchaeus. He feels the touch of the woman with the issue of blood. This is why he singled out the woman of Canaan, bypassing the apostles. That is why he singled out Zacchaeus, discerning him through the crowd and the bleeding woman, sensing the special quality of her touch. Authentic experience is convincing and prevails even over the most difficult and unfavorable circumstances. It draws God's glance. It singles man out even when he is lost in the crowd and concealed by the indifference of the world and his own insignificance. The genuine Christian is secure. He fears nothing. He trusts easily. He shows compassion. He understands. He conveys certainty and a sense of integrity. Characteristics of 
adulterated experience. By contrast, when we live the adulterated Christian life, we then feel that we must save the truth instead of being saved in the church. Instead of discerning the brothers of Christ in the persons of our Christian brothers, we face them as adversaries whom we must defeat or followers who must support our opinions. Instead of entrusting the state of our soul to God's grace, we rely with unforgivable naivete on doubtful psychotherapeutic methods. Instead of nourishing our faith with the humility of heart, we feed it with rational and knowledgeable answers. Instead of confronting the modern bioethical challenges present in our daily lives with a love that liberates or a spirit of sacrifice that transcends our logic, we slavishly insist on pedantic legal details which stifle grace or worldly compromises which altogether put grace at a distance. Instead of functioning as invisible cells of the spiritual body of Christ, we see the church as an association with members, articles, rights, and obligations which has more need of our help than that of others. This is why ultimately we do not live in the church as if in a permanent tomb which awaits our resurrection with deep humility, a spirit of sacrifice and concession, with respect for and acknowledgement of others, with tolerance and faith in God's grace alone. On the contrary, we behave as people who are transient, with an earthly outlook, claims and rights, uncontrolled sensitivities, hidden self-centeredness, hypocrisy, and senseless conflicts, insecurities and feelings of superiority, and an unjustifiably secular outlook, lying to ourselves, unpersuasive justifications, a difficulty in accepting criticism, and a willingness and ease to judge everyone and everything entirely superficially and heartlessly, indicating guilty short-sightedness which attests to our tragic lack of freedom. An outlook of this kind makes us create a God who is doubted even by himself, who continually disproves himself, who is there to satisfy our psychological unhealthy needs and make up for our inadequacy, who serves as an ideological refuge characterized by temporality and spiritual opportunism, a God who is not a loving father but a servant, who resolves our petty problems, who does not exist in order to support us but whom we have invented out of our need to believe in him, a God who, of course, does not merit anyone's faith. An attitude of this kind leads us to a church created by us and not by God. It has the failings of the twelve gods of ancient Greece and the undependability of social organizations or unreliability of speculative theories. She constitutes a mechanism which is temporarily convenient. She incorporates people into a social team, conceals the grandeur of man, and stifles the prospect of being in God's likeness. A church of this kind is neither valuable nor trustworthy. It is sufficient for one merely to confess her mechanically. The Guilt of the Contemporary Age However, it appears that the responsibility for this strange and illogical logic is not borne by each person separately. It is the predominant impersonal social mentality in our uncontrollably frantic age, which are principally liable. Our age is unique 
in many aspects, and its achievements are certainly impressive. It has discovered incredible boundaries. It has broken the barriers of earthly gravity. It creates people with features so far unknown, using artificial or animal organs or using parts from other people. It produces species which previously did not exist. It changes nature and abolishes its laws. It invades the body and influences the soul. It creates mentalities and habits and determines behaviors. It reaches inconceivable heights and penetrates the microcosm by means, at speeds and with energies surpassing all imagination. Its primary characteristic, however, is that it attacks whatever is authentic, integral, and true. It invents and produces many supposed things, things which are supposed to be something else. Our living rooms are often decorated with flowers which look real but are not. Television studios show environments which do not exist. Advertisements refer to worlds which bear no relation to reality. People wear excessive amounts of makeup and even undergo surgery in order to seemingly have faces which are not genuine, ages which are deceptive, and genders not consistent with their hormones and anatomical characteristics. The extravagant and impressive image and the predominance of appearance have guiltily crushed the essence and the discrete presence of being. All this has influenced our outlook and has wrongly shaped our life, including our spiritual life. We, Christians, speak more often about the brilliance of science, which supposedly agrees with religion, about the value of democracy, which allows the church to function freely, and about human rights as if these constituted the greatest values. And yet we all know that science has made us more arrogant than ever, since we have placed the idol of self-adoring man in God's position. Democracy has replaced the will of God with the senseless responsibility of our own choices. And human rights have brushed aside God's own right to intervene in our life, to act as God. So we have ended up being Christians trying to achieve something on our own and have difficulty in trusting ourselves to God's grace. We struggle alone to discover his secrets instead of patiently waiting for his glory to be revealed to us. We are searching for comfort and tranquility and ignore the experience of inner peace. When uttering the word love, we mean a selfish kind of liking or a pathological attachment because we refuse to discern within this word tolerance or forbearance of our brother or the cost of self-sacrifice instead of the deceit of ego enjoyment. This whole outlook filters even into the church's worship. In our monasteries, we create pieces of liturgical embroidery, which appear to be handmade, but which are not. Our vestments and sacred vessels are decorated with shiny stones, which appear to be precious jewels in terms of luster, but bear no relation to them in terms of value. Our icons are reminiscent of bygone days, but are made of paper, without color or expense, without effort, love, creativity, or time. 
We photograph and depict in detail what is carried out by our priests in church, but have difficulty experiencing the presence of God in the divine liturgy. We call our excursions pilgrimages, yet our soul is unable to come out of her prison into God's wilderness in order to meet him. We visit sacred sites, but the visitation of the Holy Spirit is not manifest in our lives. We satisfy our outward senses, but do not activate our inner inward movements. Footnote. Stillness mortifies the outward senses and arouses inward movements, while dwelling in the world acts in the opposite way. That is, it mortifies inward movements and rouses outward senses. And quote Abba Isaac, ascetical homilies. To continue. We are full of useless and irrelevant theological knowledge, but extremely poor and precious spiritual experience. This is why our worship, which has unprecedented ritual magnificence, is reminiscent more of a celebration than a mystery, of a spectacle than a prayer. The fruit of the saint's authenticity is the writing of extremely profound texts, many of which come to light after the saints have closed their eyes to this world. Our supposed authenticity is attested to by the fact that we read their writings or discuss them in the comfort of our living rooms, in the absence of any inclination for asceticism, self-denial, or self-sacrifice. Instead of reading these sacred and holy texts in order to be humbled, we use them to judge our brothers or to deliberately confuse our dream with reality. The saints nourished their lives of martyrdom with holy communion. We are deceived in our worldly spirituality and self-justification, imitating the saints in terms of of the frequency with which we partake of Holy Communion, but not in terms of the authenticity of repentance and prayer. Intellectual knowledge expressed with intensity and outbursts comes to replace the revelation of experience, which is confirmed through silence, inner stillness, and tears. We rely on past experiences in order to justify our opinions and beliefs and are unable to adopt a new mindset which may humble us and make us embrace our brothers. Thus, modern spirituality frequently appears with a misleading mask. In essence, it is nothing more than a rationalized religiosity and imitative traditionalism, which hides behind an unemotionally unhealthy adherence to external forms, rules, customs, or persons, and is manifested as empty conservatism. All these lead to false virtues, which deceive us, satisfy the devil, and offend God. They cultivate inner passions and unforgivable weaknesses and foster harshness and hypocrisy. They are termed authentic faith and experience, but bear no relation to the Spirit of God, and the tradition of our Orthodox Church. They merely create a Christian of purely fallacious authenticity after having altered faith into misbelief and transformed experience into delusion. This is why we frequently complain about being wronged, about our trials and the excessive demands made upon us, about our unbearable burdens and psychological fatigue, about God's failure to listen to us and to our brother's lack of understanding. 
This creates the sense that miracles do not occur, saints do not exist, and salvation is difficult. It produces doubts, illusions, low morale, difficulty in struggling, and generally alters the person of Christ within us. All this is the natural consequence of a man with an adulterated mindset who has lost his authenticity. The greatest danger of our age is that our experience may lose its genuineness and authenticity, and ultimately then become alien to the truth. The Magnificence of the New Man We need the authentic experience of the grace of God, just as every Christian in the history of the Church. However, it seems more difficult in our age to be receptive to divine grace. This experience brings about the magnificence of the new man, that is, of that person who has reached a state where, in remaining human, he is not human. He is godlike. He preserves his human nature but refuses to be dominated by its fallen character, while he humbly appropriates divine grace without partaking in the divine essence. Therefore, the authentic Christian is very human. He elevates and honors his human nature. He does not despise it, nor is he ashamed of it, nor does he do injustice to it. For this reason, he understands the weaknesses of others and his own capabilities. Man is both small and great at the same time. While he is a little lower than the angels, his days are as grass, because man that is in honor and understands not is like the beasts that perish. He is both profound and great in heart. He himself is an inscrutable mystery, yet he is open to and receives everyone. His life possesses truth and love. He has the freedom to accept others and the freedom to offer himself. Hence, he is also very loving and always in communion with his fellow men. He is not saved alone. He shares salvation. He is able to be emptied of his egoism and thus be united with God and his brothers. Moreover, being authentic helps the Christian function continually on the borders between the divine and the human, between logic and mystery, between divine love and human suffering, freedom and obedience. This inspires him to move beyond his personal space, beyond human measure, worldly time, the self. It is at these borders that God is hidden. It is at this beyond that one encounters one's brother, eternity, grace, truth, God himself. When our logic is challenged, faith is born. When we struggle against our emotions, grace emerges. When we deny our will, we experience God's love for us. As we decrease, so God is resurrected in power within us. Authentic experience is that of the holy saints, martyrs, apostles, and prophets. It entails asceticism, sweat, blood, pain, witness, and a humble confession of faith. The authentic Christian experiences joy through asceticism, deprivation, and sacrifice. He experiences hope through pain, illness, the discreet confirmation of God's grace, the continual expectation of a sign which he does not seek but patiently awaits, and which, when it comes, does not leave him surprised. He experiences humility through God's blessings and joys. All this is founded on faith. In the person of his brother, he encounters Christ himself. 
Next to him, he is humbled. He endures and empties himself. He shares with him his fall, faith, salvation, and God's grace. He is united with him. Our differences highlight our freedom and underline the uniqueness of each person as an image of God, while our similarities facilitate our common course. Sins, trials, virtues, divine interventions in the life of the one become part of the life of the other. Everything is communed of. Quote, it is not possible to be saved except through one's brother, Macarius of Egypt, homily 6, on Paradise and the Spiritual Law. The foundation of this state is love. However, the authentic Christian also discerns with clarity the vanity of this world, the uncertainty and transience of time, the corruptibility of material things, the falseness of temporal reality, and the crudeness of human ways, the earthliness of rationalism. It is for this reason that he continually lives beyond time and space. He lives on earth and is a citizen of heaven. Instead of the present, he lives the eschaton, the last things, instead of earthly things. He is nourished by the spirit of heaven. His soul is nurtured by divine hope. Faith, hope, love, these three, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, are the foundations of the authentic experience of each Christian. It is these three which constitute the other logic. This logic makes a person fine and noble in nature, unpretentious in his manners and inconspicuous in his ways. He becomes perceptive and transparent. He judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. God is mirrored in his person, and his grace is reflected from within. You see him and confess that the Lord lives. The true God lives. He who is not visible in bodily form nor comprehensible through contemplation. At the same time, he is whole because he always preserves his integrity and is in communion with everyone. Beside him, you sense a distance, yet you feel close to him, for he lives the gospel words that we all may be one. He is never alone, nor is he ever only with certain people or with just a few people. He has room for all. Within him radiates God. It is this authenticity which makes a Christian not contemporary in worldly terms, a superficial imitator and passive expression of the customs of the age in which he lives. Rather, he is contemporary in the sense of being the embodiment of the eternal message of God in the present. He embodies the tradition of the church in the image of her last days. He is human being par excellence, uniting the pristine beauty with the glory which shall be revealed in us, a beauty and glory which do not only demonstrate man's magnificence, but principally refer to the divine beauty which is beyond all human measure and to the greatly glorified divinity of the Holy Trinity. Authenticity is the path to perfection and holiness, even when it reveals man's weaknesses, inadequacy, and lack of wholeness. In contrast, the adulterated mindset falseness and worldly compromises block the energy of God's grace and thus do not allow man to be a partaker of God's mystery and divinity. In this sense, the authentic person is not only a model of moral perfection, but in particular, he or she is transformed into a vessel for the manifestation of dogmatic truths.
He feels the harmony of his psychosomatic nature and his divine destination in the image of Christ. He experiences the communion of love with his brothers in the image of the triune God. He lives and reveals divine economy in its entirety. The condescension of the divine incarnation, the manifestation of the Trinity at the baptism, the radiance and strange alteration of the divine transfiguration, the revelatory depth and divine glory of the mystical supper, the self-emptying or kenosis of the passion, the renewal of creation through the resurrection, the deification or theosis of human nature through the ascension, the outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the birth and course of the church throughout history, and finally the expectation of the last things, the eschaton. Just as the mother of God's purity and virginity constitute a basic precondition of her participation in the mystery of divine economy, so too does the purity of our mindset, phronima, that is, its authenticity, make a Christian capable of living the mystery of the Incarnation. A Christian who is not inspired by such dogmatic experiences, who is not enlightened by mystical revelations, who is not wounded by divine longing, who does not transcend everyday reality, who does not feel the signs of God's presence, who does not discern the traces of his energies, does not have the seal of God upon him. For him, God is a possibility, an abstract entity, a superior power, the philosophical unknown, an emotional model, a fulfillment of a psychological void. By way of conclusion, the greatest scriptural paragons of the authentic experience for every Christian are Adam and Eve before the fall, the paradise of childlike souls and the Lord's disciples. We could therefore say that in reality the person who regains the traits of Adam and Eve, the features of small children, and the characteristics of Christ's apostles become authentic. Unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3 This statement alone shows that the return to these states is a condition of the spiritual life and a prerequisite for salvation. An authentic person is one who remains uncovered, unprotected, without defenses and shields, naked, just like Adam and Eve before the fall, a person who is innocent, one able to trust just like small children, the simple person who, like the apostles, is not sullied by elevated knowledge. As we humbly realize our ignorance, what we do not know and are unable to learn, we come closer to the sense of the mystery and the revelation of true knowledge. Thus, the authentic person is the one who does not only see God's hand everywhere, but also always senses his touch. He is created by God, just like Adam and Eve in paradise. He is reformed and feels God's creative grace. At the same time, he also senses God's loving presence, his embrace, just like the little children, and he experiences the warmth of his love. Finally, God is offered to him to be touched just as he was to the apostles. Footnote, touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Luke 24, verse 39. He seeks God, and God continually confirms his presence to him. Recreation leads to the restoration of the pristine beauty.
to the experience of the divine word as one's own state. God's embrace grants the gift of theology, while touching him offers the confirmation of faith and personal experience. O marvelous wonder! John leaned on the breast of the Lord, while Thomas was deemed worthy to feel his side. The one in all draws from there a depth of theology, dispensation, while the other was found worthy to instruct us, for he clearly presents proofs of his resurrection, crying aloud, My Lord and my God, glory to thee. An authentic person is one to whom God can be revealed. Perhaps my talk has created a sense of exaggeration. Perhaps it has left an echo of disappointment. We are so alien, so far from the truth, but we are also so near, so closely related to it. Human nature contains all of it. The church simply calls us to come to know our being, to encounter our beginning as human beings, as persons, as Christians, to become again innocent like Adam and Eve, pure like little children, and spontaneous like the disciples. After all, the goal of this talk was not to present a state to be imitated, an authentic experience, but to offer a criterion against which we may compare ourselves, and a condition so as to humble us, an authentic mindset. I mean, end of investing in the kingdom of God, Alexander Press, Montreal.